Welcome to Off the Wall, a podcast aimed at helping you answer the questions, what is the point of my wealth, and what steps can I take to make that vision a reality? Your host, David Armstrong, co-founder of Monument Wealth Management, and Jessica Gibbs, director of private wealth design at Monument, will tap into their over 25 years of combined experience in wealth management to help you answer these challenging but important questions. Interested in learning more? Connect with us on Instagram at Monument Wealth and follow along at MonumentWealthManagement.com. Now, here are your hosts, Dave and Jessica. Welcome back to Off the Wall. I'm Jessica Gibbs, along with my co-host, Dave Armstrong. Welcome back, everybody, to our loyal listeners. Great. So we're talking about investments today, which is Dave's wheelhouse. Just to set some context, right? So think about this for yourself, right, as you're listening. So you own stocks. Great. And probably part of you knows that you should own bonds. You've heard that they're supposedly, you know, an important component of a well-rounded portfolio. They're going to help buffer your losses or, you know, aka lower your risk when the market goes down. But bonds aren't really doing much of anything right now. And also kind of bonds aren't necessarily the risk-proof investment that people think they are. So maybe you really aren't inclined to have a portion of your portfolio 100% of the time always owning bonds. It can be just a tough pill to swallow, particularly if you're several years out from retirement. So how do you have this risk management element of bonds and cash, as well as the long-term growth that you're going to need to make sure that you're building your portfolio that'll last through your retirement? So to talk about this today, we have Aaron Hay and Ro Pugnani from Monument's asset management team back on the pod. They're going to be talking about how we at Monument use momentum and trend following to solve both risk management and behavioral investment challenges. And we do that using a strategy we like to call flexible asset allocation. So welcome, Aaron and Ro, back to the pod. Yeah, thanks for having us back on. Yeah, excited to be here. Thanks. Great. So rather than starting with you know, how does flexible asset allocation work? Let's talk more about what the problem is that it solves. Yeah, so we've got this broken up into some big sections or major bullets. There's really three major problems we're looking to address. The first of which is behavioral. The second of which is planning. It's planning focused. And then third, you touched on this, Jessica, is what do we do? How do we invest in bonds in a world where the Federal Reserve is keeping interest rates really low. So getting into the behavioral aspect of it, flexible asset allocation, it's simple. It reduces drawdowns and it has a very clear mandate. So let's, we can unpack each of those real brief. It's simple, right? It doesn't use derivatives. It doesn't use anything that's esoteric. We're not using hedge funds, liquid alternatives as some larger investment shops like to use or talk about doesn't use commodities, nothing. It uses three asset classes, stocks, bonds, and cash. And on top of that, in the simplicity of it, it's got very rigid buy and sell disciplines. And all I mean by that is it's a systematic strategy that removes the emotion of buying and selling. So it's a systematic strategy that we really like, again, because it removes emotions from investing. Reduce drawdowns. We're of the opinion that clients who are able to reduce their drawdowns, and what I mean by that is a peak to trough decline in the value of an investment portfolio, 
being able to reduce those or limit those, it allows investors to stay invested for the long term. In fact, that's why asset allocation exists to begin with. Jessica, you hit on this topic at the beginning. Investors will will invest, you know, a certain percentage of their portfolio to bonds all the time as part of an asset allocation. Well, flexible asset allocation, we think that's a way to enhance the bond aspect of it. And then the clear mandate portion, the mandate of flexible asset allocation is this. We want to get a B on the way up and an A on the way down. And all we mean by that is winning by not losing. When the stock markets are going up, we'd like to participate in a lot of that. When they're going down, that's where we want to limit how much we're participating. So the S&P 500 goes up 10%. You want to try and get as much of that as you can, realizing you probably aren't going to always get that or outperform. And then on the opposite side of that, as the stock markets are going down, you'd like to limit the participation in that. If the stock market's down 50%, you want to be down a fraction of that. Again, winning by not losing. Aaron, I think that's a great point. It's simple. It reduces drawdowns and it has a clear mandate. Oftentimes clients, and this is again within that behavioral bucket that we're talking about, come to us or prospects come to us and say, well, I want to beat the S&P, but I also want income and I don't want to lose money, right? The fundamental challenge of an investor is that our clients are relative return on the way up. So S&P is up 10. They want to be up 10 or more. And suddenly when it's negative, their absolute return on the way down. What's interesting is that by just relaxing one of those two constraints, you can do really well. So what does that mean? If you're not trying to knock the cover off the ball on the way up, you can do amazing things on the way down. And that really is the heart of what we're trying to achieve with flexible asset allocation. I think Dave wanted to jump in. It's so interesting. It's timely now because of what you said, Aaron. The Fed has intervened in fixed income markets. Dave, I think you mentioned something about a piece that came out recently from yeah, a large sell side shop. One of the big investment firms up on Wall Street came out with a report that just talked about their expected rate of returns for asset classes. And it's your typical bar chart that goes from the left-hand side, that's the asset classes that are expected to lose money, all the way to the right-hand side, which are the asset classes that are supposed to make the most amount of money over the next five years. And everything over to the left was all fixed income. So they're actually expecting an annualized return, a negative return of 1% a year for the next five years in most fixed income asset classes. So- you know, when people think about bonds, they think, oh, safety, I, you know, that's going to protect me on the downside. Well, not if interest rates are rising. So, you know, when interest rates go up, the price of a bond goes down or the value of a bond on the secondary market goes down. So you can lose money in bonds. In fact, you will lose money in bonds when interest rates go up. And that's an important thing to consider for contrasting this to a 60-40 buy and hold you know, well-allocated portfolio, which is 40% of your money has a very high probability of losing value. And that's supposed to be the safe stuff, right? So you got to understand all of that. Right. It's funny. Traditional thinking is traditional for a reason. We always want to give it its due course. But where we are in the world now, you've actually already lost money in bonds and people just don't realize it. So even though Prices have gone up, interest rates continue to go down. The coupon off of a bond hasn't kept up with inflation. So, whether or not you're experiencing actual capital losses on your statement, you have, as an investor in bonds, lost purchasing power. 
And what's so important, and I'm going to link this to planning, I mean, it's Jessica's job, but I get excited about FAA from a planning perspective, and I can see Jessica smiling over our video feed together, but our job isn't necessarily to design a portfolio to beat a 60-40, an 80-20, a 90-10. We don't think like that. Our job is to design a portfolio that ensures you can meet your spending goals, and it'll grow into the lifestyle you want to achieve. And so losing real purchasing power, even though you're not having capital losses, is a real concern for us. So FAA, in a period of ultra-low interest rates, we use the term in-house, lets us rent bonds instead of buy them. Right? Jessica set this whole conversation up with this idea that why have a static allocation to bonds when you can have a dynamic, and we use the word flexible, why should you have a f- static investment to bonds? Right now, given the interest rate landscape, We like this approach for now. We're not abandoning 100 years of wisdom. We're just taking a shot at what is a low probability trade. We want to avoid that. Right, because most people are in tune to what they see on the news as it relates to inflation. And I don't think it should be a big surprise to anybody listening that inflation is much higher now and expected to be higher than that. And I'll quote a report that's recently come out of the investment strategy group of Goldman Sachs, which is their core CPI inflation forecast. And so for 2021, they're forecasting inflation to be 3.4% core inflation. So if you're earning 1.6% on your 10-year bond, to Rose point, your real purchasing power is being eroded by being in that safe asset class, which would argue, like Roe is, it's not necessarily as safe as it appears when you look at it in the terms of the goods and services that you can buy with the interest that's being generated relative to the erosion of inflation. Yeah. And before we jump into how it works, there's two kind of points, I think, to bridge the conversation we've already had is is this idea that if you're going to end up being behind real inflation, what ends up happening is you get forced to take more risk. So what most people do is just move from a 60-40 to an 80-20. Well, we reject that as well. We're not going to want you to take more risk just because there's something happening outside of your plan. So from a planning perspective, again, I want to bring back to that, flexible asset allocation allows us to keep tight risk parameters in place, but at least keep up with inflation or avoid capital losses. I think that's particularly important. Bro, that's that's a great point. And you've really linked the behavioral aspect of this into planning. We talked about, you know, one of the bullet points, why we really like this from a behavioral standpoint is it's got the possibility of reducing investor drawdowns, which if you look at that on a planning perspective, that's going to also reduce your risk of using risk in back-to-back sentences. But what we're looking to do is reduce sequence of returns risk, right? And so what we mean by that is the worst possible case for an investor, from our point of view, is having to take a material withdrawal from the portfolio after a protracted significant decline in the market. That's the worst possible scenario. That's the perfect storm. That's what we're trying to avoid. So that's where you have that behavioral aspect of trying to reduce drawdowns, linking over to planning, which reduces your sequence of returns risk. Right. And let's unpack that a little bit more. Sequence of returns risk is very real. We've talked about it at nauseum in other podcasts, so I don't want to go into it, except to say there's only two levers to pull there. You either slow your spending as an investor, which you shouldn't want to do in your retirement, or you reduce drawdown. So. <laughs> Again, now we're back to the initial conundrum of, well, there's only a couple ways to manage drawdown. Take less risk by holding more bonds. Well, we actually think bonds are pretty risky here, so enter flexible asset allocation. So that, that's kind of been our thinking. We wanted to just introduce the readers, the listeners to, to why this is so timely and how we're utilizing it. 
Yeah, and I would I would add to what you guys said already as far as planning another element is risk tolerance, right? So we talk about, you know, we've talked about on one side people who, you know, you've built up a substantial portfolio. Do you really need to take on excess risk in order to accomplish your goals? But what if you're on the flip side of that coin? And what if you need to take on that risk to accomplish your goals, but you really don't have an appetite for doing, let's just say, as you said, row an 80-20 portfolio? This is a strategy where if you are more conservative or your risk tolerance is lower, where you can have that exposure without the same level of volatility as if you had a higher percentage of portfolio all inequities all the time. So that's where I see as planning it, it can help bridge someone's risk tolerance and their needs with the investment portfolio. So you guys kind of said it, but let's get into it. How does flexible asset allocation work? Yeah, so we'll go through this in a step-by-step process. We'll define some terms along the way. What it is though, is it's a macro model that uses two types of momentum. And I've just introduced some buzzwords, so forgive me there, but we're gonna unpack this, we're gonna define things. What all I mean by macro model is flexible asset allocation uses macroeconomic indicators. And these are broad-based measures looking at the global economy and then the global stock and bond markets. That's all we mean by macro, okay? We're looking global. And then momentum, all I mean by momentum here is it's the rate of change in a securities price, right? Is the security, is it whether it's a stock, an ETF, whatever it is, is the price going up, okay? Yeah, so flexible asset allocation is actually a take on what practitioners call a dual momentum model, okay? And I'm gonna unpack this as well. A basic dual momentum model will look to see whether stocks are higher than they were in the prior period, okay? So for instance, is the S&P 500 higher today than it was a year ago? If so, awesome, great, you stick with stocks. That's absolute momentum, all right? That's the first part. But if you're gonna be in stocks, you obviously wanna be in the stocks that are going up the fastest, right? So for instance, we just established in our hypothetical scenario here that the S&P 500 is higher than it was a year ago. Great, absolute momentum, checked. But what part of the stock market do you wanna be in? Is it the S&P? Is it the NASDAQ? Is it small cap stocks? That's relative, right? So that's where you're selecting based on the various different stock markets, what stocks you want to be in. So that's what FAA is. It's a take on that. It's a take on dual momentum, right? We're using absolute momentum and we're using relative momentum. So what we do is we look at six macro variables, again, going back, looking globally, of differing speed. And these are just indicators that help us determine whether we want to be in stocks or not. That's all we're doing. So what happens is once our variables say all clear for stocks, think of this as the absolute momentum part, right? Do we want to be in stocks? Once we get the all clear for stocks, that's where we use the relative momentum component of this. So let's let's walk it back again. So the first decision that we make is, do you want to be in stocks at all? The second decision is, what stock markets do you want to be in? And here's where we do things a little bit differently. And Ro, feel free to jump in. But we do the same thing for bonds as well, right? So sometimes our indicators will favor stocks, and sometimes our indicators will favor bonds. And just like with stocks, we're going to look to invest in the strongest parts of the bond market. So what I'm getting at is, it's common for us to have allocations to both stocks and bonds. Yeah. So as you're talking, Aaron, I had this sort of aha moment happen, which hasn't happened in all the hundreds of discussions we've had. 
The S&P 500 is a single momentum model, quote unquote, and that's why it has such large drawdowns. It can never tack away from stocks, right? It's mandated to stay in it. So that's how FAA and dual momentum models can add value. When all asset classes, when all 500 constituents of the S&P 500 are trending down, all the S&P 500 does is reweight to manage risk. As the market capitalization of a stock goes down, it has a lower weight in the S&P. We decided not to play that game and say, look, if all stock markets are heading down, let's hold bonds. If bonds are heading down as well, right, aka you know, price down means yields are going up, we would just hold cash. It's that flexibility. By adding that second layer of momentum, to your point, is where this can be a good risk management tool. Ron Aaron, how often are you looking at this ratio, you know, what the ratio should be between stocks, bonds, and cash? Yeah, so it's a little more higher turnover, higher frequency. And all we mean by that is the model takes in data every single day, every single week, but it will digest it and will give us what we call a monthly signal. So we're looking to rebalance the model on a monthly basis. So if you held a portfolio that's invested in flexible asset allocation, you would see your portfolio rebalanced 12 times a year, right? So it's it's a little more high frequency than a traditional 60-40 portfolio, which as we've already established, what most investors will do with an allocation like that is they will set 60% in stocks, 40% in bonds, and they may rebalance it to get it back to the target weights once, maybe twice a year, and that's it. This is more dynamic because the flexibility that the model provides requires you to trade the portfolio more often. So I'm going to let you into, I obviously knew the answer to that question. I'm going to let you into a little debate that we have here at Monument internally. So I hear that and I think, great. That sounds like that could be really great, particularly if a client has a lot of retirement money. That's a great strategy to put in an IRA, for example, because you're trading more frequently, but it's a tax deferred account. You're not going to realize taxes for if a trade needs to be placed, you know, one month it's this allocation, next month it's this other allocation, and the following month it goes back to what it was before. I think about that if a client had, let's just say, though, a taxable investment account. This is a great strategy. It's just something from a planning perspective. I think about you're going to incur capital gains taxes if you do this strategy in a taxable investment account. And just, you know, to be well balanced, that means if you're trading this often, potentially on a monthly basis, you're incurring short-term capital gains, which are obviously at a higher rate than long-term capital gains. So from a planning perspective, I hear this and I think, ooh, this is a really good strategy for a retirement account, but I don't know how I feel about this in a taxable investment account. And I can see Aaron and Bro are smirking because, and Dave too, because this is this is the debate where they love the strategy so much that they want to put it in taxable money too. And so there's not only the planning aspect of this, Jessica, but there's also the aspect of freaking reality, right? And this is what reality sounds like in our world. I'm saying this to the listeners, right? Here's what we hear. Oh, capital gains, making profits, making money. That's a good problem to have. How many times have we heard that? <laughs> That's a good problem to have. Yeah. You know, it's a good problem to have until you call them up and say, here's your good problem. And they say, what? I've got to pay all that money in taxes. So it's this perspective on things, right? Like people are really excited and they, they'll say, hey, that's a good problem to have until all of a sudden the problem is staring them at the face. So that is a huge planning consideration. It really has more to do with like reality and just understanding and 
being ready for that good problem to have when it happens. If you're going to do the strategy in a taxable account, which is completely appropriate, you've just got to be ready to buck up and write some checks to the government every year. Yeah. And it's also, I'll, I'll, I'll tag in here as well. You're going to pay taxes at some point with your taxable money, right? We all know that. I like to think, and I don't want to speak for Roe, but my understanding and how I, I view this with flexible asset allocation is that's the price you pay for having a more dynamic, flexible portfolio that will limit your drawdowns for you is paying some taxes along the way. And by the way, you don't know in advance if you're going to be incurring short-term capital gains. You may or may not, right? You may end up selling some stocks at a short-term capital loss. So that's something to keep in in the context as well. But it's sort of a pay-as-you-go type of strategy versus if you have what we would call a naively allocated 60-40 portfolio and held it for 20 years. Well, if when you want to make a change, guess what? That tax bill is going to be huge as well. So it's all dependent upon whether you want to you know, kind of pay some gains as you go, or some people don't like that and they prefer to go the opposite route. But coming back to the, the way we look at this and say, yes, all clear for stocks is, is the way you said it. So Aaron, just to clarify, this strategy can, and oftentimes will be, 100% stocks, correct? Yeah, it can be. You'll hear a term thrown around in investment circles. I'm using air quotes here, unconstrained. All it means is an unconstrained model means it can be 100% in any given asset class or in our instance here, any single investment in an ETF, right? It very rarely will do, actually, it's highly unlikely it would do it in any single fund, right, or investment. But Dave, to your point, I think you're asking, can the model be 100% in stocks? It absolutely can be. There's been a handful of months this year, we actually were 100% in stocks. And I'm quoting some stats off the top of my head, but going back to, I believe, June of 2020, every single month has had at least 70% in stocks. So yes, it, you can own 100% of stocks in any given month. Right. And then once, Short answer. once the strategy gives the all clear, then it's about using the relative momentum to decide what stock sectors to be in, essentially, because we're, we're really not talking about individual stocks. We're talking about exchange-traded funds, right? So basically, an analogy here is, okay, once you get the green light, you got six cars going down a six-lane highway, right? And all ETFs, all those six cars can be going forward, meaning that they're going up in value. But some cars may be going 85 miles an hour, and some cars may be going 55 miles an hour. So while they're all making progress down the highway, some are going faster than others. And that's really the definition of relative momentum. It's how much faster is that car going that's going 85 miles an hour relative to the car that's going 55 miles an hour. And we're always trying to find the cars that are going faster relative to the other five on the highway and maybe combining them together. Now, if all of a sudden the strategy starts to say, hey, it's not a great idea to be in the stock market right now, that's when the same thing happens on the bond or the cash side, and we start to look at those asset classes. And that is what we call what row? I want, to, I want you to jump in here and say, because it's your saying about how we view bonds. Oh, that's when we're willing to rent them. Right. We rent bonds. So if you flash back to what we were saying earlier, which is, hey, in a rising interest rate environment, in a high inflation environment, 
you know, bonds can suck and you can actually lose money in it. Well, then why would you want to own 40% of your portfolio constantly in a buy and hold strategy in bonds? Why not just rent them when you need them? Boom, mic drop. You guys just want to end the podcast right now or you want to keep going? We can keep going, but okay, in every fine. podcast, Dave, you have mic dropped after your own comments, which I find to be the funniest part about it. Yeah, but cutting uh, listen, that's, just, that's, just like- my, that's just my personality, right? I can't just be the good looking face of this thing. I've got to say something, Ro, right? You Fair know? point. Well, you can't just rely on my good looks on a podcast. Your mic drop about cars and bicycles and minivans and all that started with the question about taxes, which I think was also absolutely hysterical because Jessica's right. From a planning perspective, it's so hard to think about it, but Aaron's view is pay as you go. Mine is also. Look, it's going to be up to the client and their, their individual situation. My scenario, and this goes back to sequence of returns and other types of risk, if you need the money and it's not there or you need the money and it's half of what it was, it's still worth it to pay taxes along the way. Now, if you have other assets elsewhere and so forth, then I think we can try to manage taxes. Now, how we do it here, this is a quick aside and they will probably you know pick up his mic and take it here in a second off the ground that he dropped it. But Three, two, one, go, Dave. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> we typically pair FAA with what we call TRIO, which is really interesting. From a portfolio manager's perspective, I can pair a dynamic strategy designed to manage risk with a strategy designed to actively harvest losses, to wash them out against each other and to significantly enhance a 60-40 portfolio. So, Ooh, so it's kind of like having two highways. Right. No, it's, it's like having an HOV lane. If we're going to keep bludgeoning this, this thing, right? This <laughs> it's analogy. Working. It's right. working well, surprisingly, right? <laughs> and I think because we're losing the question, the question is, is this an issue in taxable accounts? It is, and it's not, but it depends what else is going on with the portfolio and with the client. If we have the opportunity as a portfolio management team and as a planning team to pair FAA with a strategy that's actively designed to not only manage taxes but harvest them out, you have a really nice opportunity to achieve exactly what you're looking for. And so that's how we think about it. So there's some consideration to taxes, but you know, I'm always going to push back and say, I don't want the tax tail to wag the portfolio dog. Yeah. And you mentioned our trio strategy. We're going to come back and do a separate podcast on that because that's a fascinating strategy that we have as well, just for the uninitiated. That is another strategy we have, and we'll come back and talk about it. You mentioned something interesting, Ro and, and Jessica. Well, I just want to put a, some terminology to it. Talking about flexible asset allocation, trading 12 times a year, higher turnover, possibly incurring some capital gains taxes along the way, short-term in nature. Someone might characterize that as being tax inefficient, correct? Would that be a way you would possibly say that? I, I would. That's what I'm going to say. What I want to circle back around to is while flexible asset allocation might be, and I say might because we don't know ahead of time whether we're going to be taking you know gains or losses, what we can say with, with some certainty is it's not tax efficient necessarily, but it's very capital efficient, meaning, as we've talked about ad nauseum throughout the podcast here, a traditional 60-40 portfolio is always going to have that 40% in bonds, which, as we've already established, has a high likelihood of either losing money in, term, in capital appreciation terms if interest rates go up, or if they stay where they're at now, losing money on a real return basis as inflation eats away. So yeah, flexible asset allocation might not be the most tax-efficient strategy to invest in, but it's definitely more capital efficient, meaning you don't have to tie up your money in a significant portion of bonds. You can allocate them to stocks or other, you know, or places in the stock market, not just 
stocks in the U.S. It can be global. You don't have to always hold a significant chunk of bonds. You can you can allocate more to stocks. Well, what happens, Aaron, if if the indicators right they are saying, hey, we want to favor bonds, but what happens if the bond market doesn't have those good momentum ETFs? What is the model going to tell it to do if it says, hey, stocks are falling out of favor, but there's not a lot of momentum in bonds right now? What's happening? Yes, that's a great question. And guess what, Dave? We're actually kind of seeing this right now. So I want to back up and level set for a moment. I know we've already established that we look at this on a monthly basis, right? This strategy is traded. It's rebalanced on a monthly basis. However, Roe and myself, we actually can see the inner workings of the model on a higher frequency, right? We can actually see what's going on week to week. We don't see it daily, but we see it week to week. Dave, you're actually starting to see that phenomenon happen right now where some of the indicators are favoring bonds, but the bond markets themselves aren't exhibiting a lot of good positive price momentum. So in that instance, we're going to hold cash, right? Stocks, bonds, and cash. That's what we're doing. And we're actually seeing at least intramonth. We don't know what's going to happen at the end of the month. But right now, the model would suggest a higher allocation to cash. So it's back to Dave's analogy. If the highway and the HOV lane have traffic jams, we just pull over and eat a sandwich or something, right? That's Right. <laughs> or, or you notice the dead horse on the side of the road that we have beaten to death. You can see that too, right? So, Yeah. Aaron brings up a really good point about is capital efficient. He and I talk a lot about that. We're, we're, we think about that as well. And it's interesting. And this goes back to why it's a slam dunk in IRAs for anybody you know, with a medium or short-term time horizon or even in retirement. The capital efficiency of it is, is very intriguing, but that's probably a little too esoteric. But I just wanted to highlight that point again that Aaron brought up. So let's kind of pivot a little bit and let's talk a little bit more about what kind of investor would be interested in Monument's flexible asset allocation strategy and why would they be interested in it? So Aaron, did you want to jump in on the type? Because I think this is an interesting point to also go through the pros and cons. I, I think we owe the listeners, we've talked about all the benefits of it. There are certain drawbacks and we've hinted on one of them in terms of taxes, Jessica's point. I think as we think about who this is the right fit for, we owe it to the listeners to see what are the different pros and cons because not only do we want to educate people on it, we want people to self-select into this type of thinking. No, that's great. Yeah, I think it'd be good to kind of quickly recap what are the pros and cons of this strategy, of this type of strategy, when we've already hit on on several of them. So the pros of this, we, we talked oh, about- Oh, Aaron gets the pros, right? That's yeah. nice. I, I, you gotta, you right, gotta, I'll take the cons. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We already hit on this back in the behavioral aspect of it, but this is a systematic strategy. This isn't, you know, Roe, Aaron, and Dave, you know, waking up in the morning and thinking, oh, I think today is a good day for small cap companies, right? We're not doing that. This is a rules-based strategy. It, it limits the emotion, right? Second, we're using passive vehicles and active management. And that seems a little esoteric in and of itself too. All I mean here is we're using exchange-traded funds, which are low-cost, very diversified, very liquid, meaning highly traded investment vehicles. And we've kind of packaged it into an active component, meaning the model, the dynamic nature of the model. And that's actually related to the third bullet point here, which is low cost. And we've already hit on that with the passive vehicle component. So exchange traded funds, these are typically 
a lot cheaper than actively managed mutual funds. And then the last pro here is this gets you off the sidelines. If you're really indecisive and can't determine, you know, when do I want to get back into the stock market? Or better yet, we can link this back. It it can get you onto the sidelines too, right? So this is this is a really systematic way of allowing you to be in the stock and bond markets. And then also when things aren't so great, going back to the analogy that we had earlier, we can ride out a bear market in cash as well. So it's systematic. We use passive vehicles, it's low cost, and it can get you off the sidelines. So now it's my turn to talk about the cons, I guess. So I'll start with the most cogent lockdown argument not to do FAA. Simply put, it does not beat buy and hold of the S&P. Now, that's a false argument because the S&P is 100% stocks, and we compare this strategy to 60-40. But if your goal is to say, I am solely a wealth maximization participant, and I am volatility and draw it out and behaviorally agnostic, I'm a robot, I've lost my login, I'm not going to look at it for 20 years, then this dynamic strategy comes close but doesn't beat a 100% stock buy and hold of a passive ETF, a passive index. That's the most important point I think to get across. Does it beat a 60-40? It has historically. We can't make forward-looking statements because who knows what the world looks like. The second con of this strategy is that it's designed to hunt bear markets but it doesn't do a great job in black swan events. So a 1987-style one- or two-day aberrant bout of volatility of, of a significant drawdown would hurt this strategy as well because it could happen from a place where you are 100% stocks. What I find really interesting about that, I, I keep de facto entering, arguing some of the pros after I say the con because I enjoy this so much, but we have a nice, a nice piece of data here of the March, February 22nd to you know March 18th or March 19th of 2020, where the market lost, including intraday peaks and highs, peaks and lows, the market lost about 39%. I think on a closing basis, it was 36. Well, the strategy lost about 19, right? Again, depends on which client, what day they came into the model, but it lost about 19 to the S&P's 40, call it. And then it caught the second half of the year rebound and did very well. Had that 16 trading day crash been a two or three day trading crash, we would have experienced about the same losses of the S&P. So, you know, an exogenous event that's unforeseen, that's not a trend, but a, a total and complete collapse, this strategy will lose as much as the market will. Sure. And that makes sense too. I mean, that's with any of the models that we track, right? Like our Moncon model, it's not designed to predict events. Nothing is, nothing can. But if you just start to aggregate some signals together and make an intelligent prediction about what's happening. I mean, that's essentially what's happening is we're we're raising the probability of being right and lowering the probability of being wrong. Doesn't mean we eliminate it, but we're just we're talking about probabilities here. Right. Well said. Well said. We've already talked about the third con, which is taxes are, are definitely a headwind for the strategy. Again, the individual and the planner has to weigh needing the money and, and the psychology of the individual against the taxes. And the last part can actually happen, and we have data on that as well, is the market can go through a protracted period of trendlessness. I'm not sure that's a word, but if the market has a net sideways period with big up and downs around a mean. Let me give you a hard example because I was actually running a strategy like this as chief investment officer of a previous organization during a period of trendlessness. In 2015, the S&P opened and closed within 25 cents of itself. So 12 months, a full calendar year, so it opened and closed completely sideways of itself. No movement, but there were two 10% pullbacks and one of them was 
a strategy like this would end up finishing negative on the year, albeit slightly 2, 3, 4% to an S&P that's flat. So a period of trendlessness that lasts 12, 18 months, I mean, that's pretty rare, but it can happen. And I think we should make listeners aware that those are the four kind of cons that we see. So let me just summarize them again. Taxes, it doesn't beat the the 100% buy and hold, but again, false comparison, 100% stocks versus 60-40, trendlessness, and a black swan. So the interesting thing about the trendlessness is it also has to do with the period of time, right? Like you could argue that the whole period of time between 2000 and 2010 was a trendless period, start to finish, right? I mean, it was, so yeah, I mean, you could argue that, but because we're using momentum, there are periods within a trendlessness period that you can be allocated to the asset classes that are going down the highway a little bit faster than the other ones. So maybe all those cars on the six lane highway are going 15 miles an hour, you know, and you're trying to find the car that's going 18 miles an hour. So in trendlessness, there can be some opportunity to still pick up pennies on the ground. Right. And I know Jessica's like going to wave us off here, but that's an interesting definition of trendlessness because I was trying to paint this picture of if you have sort of volatility around a small mean that'll hurt the model. But 2000, 2010 saw a massive run up into 2000, a massive collapse, and then another massive run up. So you're right, it started and stopped close to itself within 10 years, but there was huge variance. So the model needs momentum. So maybe I shouldn't say trendlessness, I should say no momentum. Well, I was I was also trying to find an opportunity to sound smart. So, you know, I think your definition of trendlessness is perfect. I was just trying to add on to, you know, not be just the good looking guy on the podcast. Right. I didn't imply, I didn't want to imply that you didn't sound immeasurably brilliant, Dave. Oh, almighty Dave. I meant to say that it goes back to your point, though, of what are you trying to actually measure, right? It's a bear hunter. And if you just go sideways, that's not actually a bear market. The S&P can go sideways for two reasons, right? Because it literally went nowhere or it crashed and then came back up. In the crash and then come back up, we do well in the true sideways, right? So it's actually, the strategy is designed to hunt bear markets. The strategy isn't designed to hunt a period of indigestion, so to speak. I want to bring us back to my question of who should do this. Yeah, that's a logical question. Actually, I think a, a logical starting point would be, you know, because we think this is so broadly applicable to, to investors and for clients that we like to work with. I think a logical starting point is who shouldn't be invested in this type of strategy and in flexible asset allocation in particular. So it's a very small subset of clients of potential investors out there. And it's an investor who has all three of the following characteristics simultaneously, okay? It's anyone who has a significant amount of time to compound their wealth. Think multi-decade periods. That's number one. Number two is someone who is highly risk tolerant. And that can manifest itself in any number of ways. You could truly be someone who loves to take risks is that you know prototypical vegas style gambler or it could be this stuff doesn't interest me i lose my password and i don't plan on checking this until 20 years down the road right so we've got number one anyone with multi-decade periods to compound number two you're highly risk tolerant and number three you have the majority of your wealth and tax deferred accounts and this last one is a little counterintuitive. It's not what people think. And this is the way we, we really look at it is if you have money in a taxable account, there's sort of a de facto, there's an implicit assumption here that, that you might have the need for that money in the interim, right? 
because despite what we can do on the planning side, despite what you can do personally to plan, there's always events out there that happen and minimizing drawdowns is key. And I'm going to bring this back to what we talked about earlier on in the podcast, the behavioral aspect of this. The worst thing that can happen to a portfolio is liquidating because of a life event in the middle of a bear market, right? That is the absolute worst case scenario. Agreed. We always try to preach that be financially unbreakable statement, right? And having the cash and not not being in a situation where you have to liquidate in a drawdown is a massive benefit to doing good planning. Right, Jessica? Correct. <laughs> I was setting you up there. Yeah. So we'll go into you know who this is really suitable for, but just to kind of recap there, clients who, who shouldn't pursue this, anyone who's got multi-decade periods to compound, highly risk tolerant, and the bulk of your wealth in tax-deferred accounts. Now, it's when we start to relax any one of those three constraints, and that's where we're talking where this might be a good fit for someone. Aaron, do you think about this in terms of size of someone's portfolio, whether this is a strategy worth introducing or not? Yes and no. I really hesitate to say this, but if you had... I don't want to say limited funds, but if you were sort of going to take a, an, an all or nothing approach to this, for a lot of people, not everyone, and it's circumstance dependent, of course, flexible asset allocation is what I like to call a, an all-weather kind of do-anything portfolio. If I had to allocate to only one strategy that we manage here at Monument, it would definitely be flexible asset allocation. Having said that, yeah, we do look to size this appropriately, meaning for most clients, in fact, I think the vast majority of our clients, flexible asset allocation isn't 100% of their allocation because we look at flexible asset allocation as more of a, a risk managed component. So again, I hate to use the term bond proxy, but it's sort of an in-between strategy that if clients have a, a large allocation to long only stocks. And all I mean by that is a strategy that by its mandate has to be in stocks 100% of the time, whether they're going up, whether they're going down, whether they're going sideways. If you have a large allocation to stocks, 50, 60, 70%, and you're looking to sort of fill in the gap to help manage risk, so to speak, well, we've already established you can do that by investing in bonds, right? But then that's where you arrive back at that naively diversified 50-50, 60-40, 70-30. And that's where we like to, to rent bonds with this strategy. And it's a good in-between strategy, an in-between strategy to mitigate risk. And adding to the size question, I just want to put some context on it to show that we're not blind to history or probabilities. I think in a world five years from now, probably not that soon, maybe 10 years from now, that's more, quote, normal. If interest rates are double or triple the yield on the S&P, back to what they were historically, maybe a fixed allocation of bonds makes a lot more sense then, right? Because you're getting a coupon that's more than inflation to the stuff. But at this point, the size question is, it's a little harder to answer, Jessica, if we're being honest about it, just because the headwinds facing bonds are significant relative to most of history. I think in 10 years, if we re-recorded this podcast, I'd like to think our Enthusiasm would be somewhat tempered for FAA relative to a much more traditional approach, at least on the margin. Ro, you bring up a good point on the bonds of so getting back to whatever, you know, quote unquote, normal environment. I think it's safe to assume a higher interest rate environment 
where you can get higher fixed coupons off of your bond portfolio, that comes back to planning, right? And if you buy a laddered bond portfolio where you own the individual bonds and absent some type of a credit or a default event, you know exactly almost to the day when you're going to receive your coupon payments. That's the type of environment, right, that it does make sense probably to have a, a quote, buy and hold, long only static bond portfolio that's going to pay you those fixed coupons. But again, that's that's probably, you know, years and years in the future. All right. So we've been we've been going for a while and thank you to all the people who are are still sticking with us. I mean, Aaron and Ro, what's the what's the last thing to wrap up? You know, this is obviously it's we've talked about a lot of things here today, but you know, what would be what would be just the biggest thing that you would want to underscore or, or want listeners to take away from this conversation today? Yeah, I guess I'll go first. There are strategies out there to improve on the status quo. You got to be with a team, with a group of investors that will think differently, that will allocate differently. This is not the kind of strategy that is going to be executed by large firms on behalf of retail individuals. I say this with some humility. In the past, I was a chief investment officer of a large public company, and we had strategies like this. We didn't even have them like this, and if we did, we would have only brought them to our institutional clients. I think one advantage of Monument is that we're not beholden to anybody but our clients, and we can respond to the environment in front of us. And right now, the environment in front of us worries me as a professional investor for a traditional 60-40. If we find ourselves in a world where interest rates are rising and stocks are going down, a traditional 60-40 is going to be in a lot of trouble. And that's how most of most RIAs are allocated. Find a firm like ours that has a strategy like this and get to know it, understand it, adopt it, and you can really enhance your long-term drawdowns first and overall wealth as a result of partnering with a firm that has expertise in – I mean this is two expertises on our behalf. We're systematic and we're risk-aware. Firms who think like that I think are going to do well over the next 24, 36, 48 months in the market. No, that's, that's well put, Ro. And I'd add on to this just a just a different take to maybe wrap up the concepts underlying flexible asset allocation and you know trend following is people like to talk about risk and throw around different terms of what is risk. We really, really do think that drawdowns, again, peak to trough declines in portfolio values, that is one of the primary risks out there. And related back to planning, that sequence of returns risk, having to take a significant withdrawal from your portfolio in the middle of a protracted bear market. That's the worst case scenario. So flexible asset allocation, it's seeking to limit your drawdowns. And all we're doing here is we're looking to do more of what's working and less of what's not, right? If stocks are going up, we're going to look to be in stocks, sometimes 100%. If not, sometimes we'll have some bonds. And as we talked about earlier, if neither of those asset classes are doing well, We'll just hold cash and sit out the storm. It's as simple as that. Yeah, there's no such thing as the end-all, be-all investment strategy. There is no silver bullet like this is the best investment strategy in the world. That does not exist, right? To Rose's point, I think this is really about making sure that you are utilizing a set of tools inside of a system that increases the probability of making money and letting it compound out over time rather than having a, a home run derby and trying to hit everything out of the park. I mean, we are trying to get people on base here. Rob, using a baseball analogy now, not the highway, okay? But this is what people expect from me. The good-looking guy on the podcast has to be the person that wraps up with something like this. So, But 
there is no silver bullet. So when we combine these things with solid planning and a process, it allows the probability of success to go up over time, which allows investors to compound their returns to meet their goals and objectives way down the road. So with that, on behalf of Jessica and I, thank you, Aaron and Roe, for your time today. Always love talking about this stuff. Most people don't know this, but we talk about this every single morning. So this is just like another early morning when we wake up and talk about asset management, except we just recorded it this time. So really enjoy this conversation. We'll come back with a conversation about some of our other strategies to trio and everything. But as always, if anybody listening has any questions, Aaron and Roe, as you can tell from this podcast, they like to talk. So they are more than happy to talk to you about any of this stuff. Give us a call, shoot us an email, find us on social media, you know, rate and review our podcast, you know, all of those standard wrap up statements. That's it right there. But with that, we'll go ahead and sign off and say thanks again to Aaron and Roe. Thanks, guys. Enjoyed being here. Thank you.